I approach summer like the Olympics. Always have, always will. And while my co-host, who is no doubt lolling on some beach celebrating her anniversary and tackling one of her escape stories that she told us about earlier this summer, I, I'm, just, I'm just a different creature altogether. I approach summer reading with the dogged, my wife would say borderline, pointless obsessiveness of a Ph.D. candidate crashing a dissertation together. One summer, for instance, I decided it was all about Dickens, Bleak House, Little Dorrit, Tale of Two Cities. Another summer, it was Bologna, 2666, wild and crazy. One year, it was Melville. I mean, really, Melville, Moby Dick, Omu, Taipei, and Pierre. (laughs) There's a strange book. And also, visit the Melville home up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts while you're at it. I did Tolstoy one summer. That took up a winter, too. And Dostoevsky, ending appropriately on The Idiot. But there's such joy in diving deep and so many rewards, I think. This summer, I decided I would do something less classical but still pretty ambitious, emotionally at least. As the 10th anniversary of September 11th approaches, I decided to go where some, by my way of thinking, brave novelists have already gone. I decided to look at some of the fiction about that day in New York. It's been an amazing journey, as I have my own memories of that day, as do you. It's kind of a perfect bond for a summer book club, don't you think? My first book club pick is Jonathan Safran Foer's Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. The novel follows a nine-year-old boy named Oscar in the years after his father dies in the World Trade Center on September 11th. Jonathan came into the studio last week, and to my first question about how did he get up the gumption to revisit 9-11 as a novelist, he delivered a big surprise right off the bat. In a way that assumes that I intended to, which I didn't. Uh, You know, I was writing a very different kind of book that also had a young protagonist who had experienced a a familial trauma. And um, this was in 2004. And I'd given a draft of it to my little brother, who's always been my first reader. And he said, God, you know, you have this peculiar thing, this kid whose father died suddenly in some traumatic way. The kid's afraid of heights. The kid's afraid of airplanes. And then presented me with all of this other evidence for why, in fact, I might have been writing about or around September 11th. And it was like that moment in a, a trial, you know, when the bloody glove comes out. Right, right. And they say, well, you've been saying this this whole time, but how do you deny this? And that was how I felt. Like, how could I deny it? And then I had a choice. Then I could actively deny it. You know, I could say, right. well, I realized that that probably is what I was writing about, but I'm going to choose not to do it because of all of the reasons not to. And there are a lot of good reasons not to. Or, okay, so that's that's where my mind is. That's where my imagination is. That's where my heart is. I'll pursue it. And so I chose to pursue it. You know, in some ways, the narrative of that is is about our relationship to an event like this. And the way this book unfolds to a reader is you get this sense that something like 9-11 just hits reality itself. I mean, just completely changes. Tiny details become huge events. Huge events suddenly seem like tiny details. And, And your character, Oscar, because of his peculiar sensibility, has no particular judgment. He's happy to think about Yorick or Stephen Hawking <laughs> or mathematics or how many locks there are in the world and weaves it together perfectly because it makes total sense in his head. I, there's just something deliriously exciting about being able to just veer around ideas that way. I think a kid, I mean, I, I came into this through the back door because it wasn't, this was not a, a deliberate choice that I made, but to have a child narrate or be the, the guide and a into a book that takes at least September 11th as its backdrop, but probably much more than that. But in many ways, 
it would have been a good deliberate choice because, you know, first of all, kids are – they have no – as you were sort of alluding to, they have no sense of proportion, no sense of scale. Like um, a skinned knee can be the end of the world and the end of the world can be something boring that they don't want to hear about right now. Right, right, right. So um, – on top of which they have this kind of manic imaginative energy, not just unusual kids like Oscar, but every kid. And um, this kind of romantic – a kind of romantic outlook on the world. I don't mean optimistic, but a desire to see things as they should be and, and a refusal to understand why they would be any other way. Um, that's why kids throw tantrums, you know, when adults just kind of shrug it off. So once I realized that I was writing a book that was going to – involved September 11th, I did suddenly feel very grateful to have this kind of open wound of a, of a narrator. And a lot of stuff came out of you. Uh, I don't think of you as a terribly sentimental character in your work, but uh, there's just real emotional power in the phone messages from dad um, and then how you go from the poignancy of those messages to, but isn't it really about time, that time is stopped in these messages? And couldn't we reverse time? Couldn't we look at the bodies falling from the building backwards and then they start flying? Where does that come from? Well, I mean so much of the book is about Oscar's imagination saving him, saving Oscar that is. And and also about the limits of imagination. You know, it can maybe save Oscar but it cannot save his dad. And in these final moments of the book when Oscar – which is kind of just a distillation of everything that's happened before. It's Oscar trying to will his dad back to life, basically trying to imagine, you know, what if everything had happened backward that day? If the buildings had, if the if the planes had come out of the buildings instead of going into them, if his father had descended instead of um, risen in the elevator, if he'd walked backwards back to his house instead of gone to work, what we've seen in 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 the course of Oscar's journey is this boy who is becoming a man, um, who is entering the world of cause and effect, you know, and exiting the world of wouldn't it be great if it were this way? And there's something wonderful about that in the sense that we know that he is in his own way going to come to terms with this and in his own way move forward into the mature world. And there's something tragic about it too, just as there's there's something always that's, you know, redeeming and tragic about the end of childhood. But at the end of the at the end of the book, when he takes this flipbook of images of a body falling and and reverses it so that the the body is rising, it is a kind of it's a very bitter. I think I, I experience it anyway as a very bittersweet moment. It is the triumph of his imagination. It is it is his redemption. But it is also you know the display of the limits of his imagination. Oscar will never have a dad again. You know that is the truth of the event. Nevertheless, and I believe that Oscar will function perfectly well in the normal world as he goes on and leaves this world of the imagination. Yet, you make the case implicitly in this book, it feels like, that these memories are alive, are real. I mean, I went seamlessly from this book to remembering the moment before I learned that the planes had hit outside of my apartment, which overlooks the Twin Towers to what I did the day before, which was the exact same weather, the most beautiful September day. I went and played tennis on Roosevelt Island with a friend I no longer have, and I haven't been back to those tennis courts since. Mm. I can remember those moments, and they live there in some kind of reality. Do you have memories that are real, even if they're not real in the sense that we can go back there? 
Absolutely. I think that that's maybe the strongest instinct that people have in response to a trauma is, I mean, what's the question everybody asks, right, about a traumatic event? Right. The first question everybody always asks is, where were you? Yeah. Always, you know? Um, I'm surprised, frankly, it's taken us this long in this conversation right, right. for that to come up. And I think part of that is we have this desire to measure our distance from what happened and to, you know, there we have these ideas that we want to continue to believe despite all of the evidence, like bad things don't happen to good people, right? Even though we're two adults talking right now and we're cynical enough to know that terrible things happen all the, all the time to good people and also cynical enough to know there probably aren't any good people, we want to believe in this kind of contract with the universe that these horrible random events without any reasonable explanation happen. Well, I'm sure I'm not the only person that's thanked you for giving them permission to imagine the bodies flying up and the elevators going down and the planes going backwards hmm. and all of that. Um, it's a it's a huge sort of testimony to the power of literature, it seems to me. And the limits of the power of yeah, literature. That's right. That's yeah, right. You know, my um, my son, one of my one of my sons had uh, got his thumb stuck in a door and it was really bad, really bad accident. And the thing he kept saying right afterwards is, why did that happen? Why did that happen? Why did that happen? And kids can be very good at articulating what adults are bad at articulating. And I think that's how a lot of people felt. Captured perfectly by Jonathan Safran for an extremely loud and incredibly close. His latest book is Eating Animals, published in 2009. Find more of our Summer Book Club series by heading to thetakeaway.org. I'm John Hockenberry. Celeste Headley is out this week. This is The Takeaway. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.